This is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, editor of Tradition. A few weeks ago, I was very proud that our journal convened the first annual Tradition Today Summit, which was held in Teaneck, New Jersey, bringing together the great minds, thinkers, leaders, rabbis, academics, educators, and some very distinguished younger members of our community to discuss and debate and explore topics related to material success and its challenges. The papers that were presented and circulated and discussed at that event will find their way into the pages of tradition in the coming year. We hope that the ideas that were discussed at that event will have legs and will get out there into the community and have an impact on our larger communal conversation about this issue. Among the papers discussed and presented was a co-authored item penned by Avital Chizik Goldschmidt and Chaim Seyman. It's my great pleasure to host Chaim now for a conversation on the Tradition Podcast about the topic of their paper, which was called Materialism and the Rise of Modern, comma, Orthodoxy. Chaim Seyman is professor of law and chair in Jewish law at Villanova University's Charles Widner School of Law, and he's the Albert J. Wood Fellow at the Katz Center for Advanced Jewish Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Here's our conversation. Welcome to the Tradition Podcast, Professor Chaim Seyman. We were really happy to receive the paper that was presented at the Tradition Today Summit, which was co-authored by yourself and Avital Chizik Goldschmidt, who's a journalist and a, and a Rebetzin and a keen observer of, of, of Jewish life. Uh, and uh, we're delighted to have you here to, to talk about that. Thank you so much. Uh, it was a real pleasure to uh, to write this paper, um, really to co-write it with uh, with with two people who I would say have some common interests and some very divergent uh, experiences and and realms of expertise. And I thought it was a great idea for tradition uh, to pair us together. Uh, Avital, I think, is very well known uh, as as probably the leading uh, journalist who writes for the outside world. Uh, about from culture and and from ideas and really showing our community, uh, I would say in in its sometimes in its best and sometimes in its uh you know in its less than best light, uh, both as a mirror to ourselves and and outward. I come from a very different place, a legal scholar, a lachic scholar, um, but have recently also become more and more interested in how the ideas that we read in the books uh, get. Play, you get you know, put on meat on the bones and played out in in real life and in society, and how social change and halachic change and communal change are all interrelate. And I thought it was just a really great and promising project to put us both together and to each to have us overlap our strengths uh, and reinforce those, and each bring uh, steps to the table that the other one doesn't have. And uh, we hope that the final product will uh, will reflect the best of that. Titled materialism and the rise of, wait for it, modern, comma, orthodoxy. There's a lot resting on that comma. So explain to us what you're doing there, what that's trying to telegraph, because I think it's really central to understand what you're doing in this project. And hopefully uh, at some point in the coming year when the paper is published in the pages of tradition alongside the other papers from the, from the event, I think that comma will be pointed to as uh, as one of the really interesting insights to what we've accomplished in thinking about this issue together. 
Sure. Thanks so much. Uh, so, you know, this comes from traditionally we think of there's modern orthodoxy and then there's the yeshivish or Haredi world. And that is the world I think that you and I grew up into, that there were these fairly neat categories and you sort of knew um, where the boundary lines were and where some of the gray areas are. Uh, increasingly, uh, I think, and, and myself and Avital think that this isn't the best way to think about uh, the Orthodox community anymore for a bunch of reasons. Uh, at this point, what we call modern orthodoxy, capital M, capital O, maybe with a dash in between, uh, is a fairly the readership of tradition. The readership of tradition is a, is a fairly small part of the orthodox pie. Uh, if you look at the demographic trends, it is stable, roughly. But since the other parts are growing so quickly, it is it is shrinking in its uh, relative Relative. size, though its absolute size is probably not. Uh, it's also shrinking in its ability to define the space and the culture of orthodoxy. Uh, I think, you know, a generation or two ago, because that part of the orthodox world was most uh, in conversation and visible to the non-orthodox or the general world, it held uh, a possibly disproportionate sway in sort of forming how orthodoxy sees itself and how the world sees it. Uh, that's no longer true. Uh what we might call, you know, the Haredi community, the yeshivish community, or really maybe just orthodoxy that's not modern is probably the best way to think about it, um, is growing at, a, at an amazing, uh, amazingly fast pace and um, is no longer so, so much inward focused, but has a high degree of outward focus and activism in the world, politically, socially, economically, etc. Uh, and therefore, uh, that is creating what I would call modern comma orthodoxy, which is it's not modern orthodox, but it's clearly a certain uh, a type of orthodoxy that is in its own way engaged and active in the modern world in exactly the way that two generations ago was seen to be the province of what we call modern orthodoxy. So I think that it's important, we think that's important to name that and to put our finger on it and say, look, there's something new happening here, something different. I think evidence of this we could see in all sorts of ways and all sorts of places. That is a modern comma orthodoxy, though it's not modern orthodoxy. Right, meaning there's no type of attempt to synthesize the uh, Western civilization and Torah thought. This is not an outgrowth of Rabbi Lamb's project of uh, Torah Umada in any in any manner. It's a way that that community, which and this will bring us to our next topic, which now benefiting from material success, which in previous generations was unimaginable uh, on, the, on the scale that it enjoys it now, are able to enjoy some of the aspects of larger of larger society. You, you start off the paper with this anecdote, uh, this vignette from uh, the world of online auctions in which the stender, a piece of rather... Uh, flimsy, uh, you know, nailed together wood on which Rav Chaim Knevsky, Zecher Tzadik Levracha, learned day in and day out was auctioned for some astronomical, astronomical fee. And then after, very, very much after the paper was uh, was drafted and circulated, there was this case of Chaim Knevsky's pair of his pants that went up, went up for auction and uh, were being bidded on for astronomical, astronomical uh, fees. And you the game to, jersey. Right? So you 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 mentioned that once upon a time, the distinctly 
um, orthodox way or yeshivish way or Haredi way of demonstrating material or displaying uh, material success was really quite different. And that somebody would, would display material success in this manner is this very distinctly spending millions of dollars uh, on an item whose, whose value is created exclusively from within the culture of Torah and orthodoxy. Uh, this is a this is a unique a unique term. In other words, we're not talking about people that are conspicuously consuming uh, uh, fancy cigars and Passover vacations and driving a Maserati, right? In other words, there's something something new going on here. So how was this done in generations past? In other words, in, this is this is a new phenomena. But what? How was it done previously? Yeah, so so the, this story, you know, struck struck me and struck us. Um, the story of Chayvinievsky Stender, uh, precisely for for many of the reasons you're highlighting. So I don't know where the Chazonish Stender is. Um, I don't know where the Briskarov Stender is. Maybe the family has it. Maybe maybe not. Right, but but you know, a generation or two ago, no one thought that these things were something to be auctioned and maybe, you know, maybe for, for, for a, what today would seem a minimal sum, right? But, but here we have, and, and, you know, we're attracted to Reb Chaim Kanievsky in this story for, for a bunch of reasons. You know, we just had the Petira of, of Gershon Edelstein, uh, Zechert Zalek and of course, before you had Rav Yashiv, Rav Leib Steinman, uh, you know, there were others in, in that sort of group who, you know, all in their hundreds and nineties, uh, the sort of very last embers of of the European born, although all these people live most of their lives in their Israel, but still kind of connected to that, you know, Litvish, Yeshivish, Lithuanian, which means Litvish, um, world uh in Eretz Israel. Um, and they they that that generation is is basically over. Um and that generation and really we should say the irony of course is that all of those figures you mentioned were distinguished for the extremely ascetic lifestyles. That right. So that, that, that's where I'm going, is that that these figures, and I think Reb Chaim Kanievsky more than all of them, uh, which is why I think also the mourning, I mean, it's hard to measure these things exactly, but if you take, you know, if you if you take that group, I think the emotional outpouring um, for Reb Chaim Kanievsky exceeded uh, that of his, we'll call him peers. Um, and I think there's part of the reason for that is that maybe him more than any of these people, um, because he didn't, he wasn't a Rosh Yeshiva, he didn't have a quote job, um, uh, you know, represented the, the kind of core essence of this ideology of precious, uh, which, which, you know, emanates from the Gona Vilna and, and through the Musra movement and through the Yeshiva movement in a slightly different way, um, which is that one's topic in life is to learn Torah to only learn Torah, and one is willing to make, not sacrifices in the way that we say, you know, we pay lots, well, we here in America pay lots of money for day school and whatnot, but but basically living on subsistence level poverty uh, for, for the sake of Kulo Torah. Uh, that is a tradition that goes back at least to the Gra, if not beyond. Uh, and, you know, every picture of Chaim Knievsky's apartment uh, and it was fascinating to watch whether in the New York Times or in the, you know, Yeshivish Haredi press, everybody latched onto this. He lived in basically a two-bedroom apartment 
that had nothing valuable except for for Svarim. Svarim. And that's who he was. And that's what his model And unbeknownst and, to him, he was sitting on a million-dollar stender. <laughs> right. And unbeknownst to him, he was uh, learning, had he I guess. Known, had it. he known how much that stender was worth, he would have sold it in order to support widows and orphans. Lichara. That would be very consistent with uh, with the way he lived. Um, and that and that when he dies, um, and I and I think this is part of why that was this emotional outpouring was a sense. Well, we we are now in a different era, um, not just because it's the end of the, you know, people with a kind of genealogical and physical connection to Lita, although that's of course connected, but because because this ideology of precious at that level to that degree is is no longer. And and then what almost as a metaphor for that was the fact that the stender which more than anything represents his learning in Hasmada, which he was, you know, justly world famous for, is then auctioned off to somebody. Uh, the, the Haredi press reports were that someone in America, which makes sense, uh, you know, different numbers were floated, but a lot of money. Uh, and that becomes the way that person is now sort of demonstrating, on the one hand, their fealty to the Olam HaTorah and to the Olam HaYeshivos and to the ideals of Chaim Kanievsky, uh, but in a really, really different way. And part of what Avital and I think is that that move um, is indicative of a certain change, uh, certainly in the American Orthodox world, in which there is now homegrown luxury. And, and to come back to what you said before, right? So if you go back into the both the memory of two, three generations ago, um, the firm world is not a world where there's a lot of luxury outlets. And typically, uh, people who wanted to engage in that were saw themselves and were seen as stepping outside of the firm bubble because that's where the luxuries were. Uh, so, you know, a Cadillac Right. And we might have to explain to uh, some of the younger listeners, if tradition Cadillac. has younger listeners, what a Cadillac is. But a Cadillac in the 60s, 70s, 80s was the, the American luxury, luxury car. The height of luxury. So when you said, oh, this Jew drives a Cadillac, that was almost like saying he is not from or no longer from. Because the firm world had very little money. And it was the non-firm Jewish world that was then sort of ascending through the ranks of the professions, law, medicine, business, et cetera. Uh, and pretty much that's where the money was. And um, even if you had, even if you had, you know, within the firm world, both the modern and the Haredi firm world, there were, of course, a few very wealthy gvirim that supported operations. They led a much more modest lifestyle because conspicuous consumption on their spend part. It. Well, there was nowhere to spend it. Conspicuous consumption on their part would have been even more seen as more excessive because they were the only ones doing it. Once you have right. a critical so, so, mass of people that can spend in that manner, it becomes less tsanua for each and every one person to engage in it. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. So I think there's two points there. One, um, that look, they're always gvirim, right? And there's always wealthy people and other poor people. But as you said, when you live in a culture where where the markers of wealth and spending are external to the firm world, you necessarily go outside of it. I, I'll give an example to try to concretize this. So not my grandparents, because they were in a very different place, but growing up, you heard of people's grandparents in the 70s and 80s, you know, Orthodox people who would go on cruises. Now, these were not Jewish or firm cruises in any way, shape, imaginable. Because there was no these such were, thing. Because there was no such thing. That's right. Um, so these were general uh, cruises. And, you know, 
they either had dairy or double wrapped fish or whatever. But you know, don't they ask, were participating. There's a don't ask, don't tell. This wasn't part of the from public discourse because everyone understood that it's a little shady, a little shaky. And you know, whatever dancing and music and and entertainment that was on these ships and the balls and all that was was just sort of the general you know culture of the time. And and when you did that, right, you were leaving your firm bubble, and you were going somewhere else, and that's where it was, or a country club, right, or a re- right. What was the fanciest restaurant? Luigi Siegel's, right, which is like a deli. Right. Uh, so there simply was nowhere. I, I mentioned at the conference that uh, in in the lifetime of most of the people in the room, and I'm very proud that we had some very many younger members in in the audience because I really do want uh, them to be stepping into this uh, leadership and thought leaders in our community. But there were, of course, very many of the the, the senior fellows and figures around the tradition table. And I mentioned the lifetime of many people in this room, the most luxurious, opulent vacation an Orthodox Jew could imagine was the homoac. Right. And now we have Pesach vacation. That's before my time, but certainly where where people spend, people spend tens of thousands of dollars per person to go have Pesach in, in Morocco and then all types of other places. That's right. So, so the scale of this has just totally changed and to sort of come back to your point there are now internal from markers right so if we take the stender or broaden out to gnazim uh, which is a a fairly new auction house of judaica whose catalog i I mean i'm no expert in sotheby's but but it, it 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 gives it a run for its money i mean this is really well done um Right and 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 these you know these 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 uh, Pesach programs that you're mentioning and all the you know lechaims and shevbrachas all, all these markers of luxury are are driven by the from community and that's what what so sh- struck me about the Stender is that it's not a Michael Jordan jersey it's not a LeBron jersey it's not famous art you know it's not you know it's not even a fancy car a Maserati or Ferrari whatever it is it's something whose value is exclusively within the firm community and the fact that it attains that market means that right this is how markets work it's not only one buyer that buyer implicitly or explicitly is making an is understanding that there are others in presumably his class who will value this thing both financially and socially, which is why it's a reasonable investment. By the way, if this was sold for $2 million, the guy might be a genius. He might be able to sell for five or six. And if it's not the standard, then it's something else. I mean, I think this is the point um, that a market only works when it, when there's enough players in it to keep both the social capital of this Jersey uh, or <laughs> of the standard uh and and the financial capital, just like, and I was going to Jersey, so I just like if all of a sudden the bottom falls out out of the NBA or the NFL, all of a sudden that memorabilia is not worth much. So this is also a prediction of the future direction of the community that 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 these prices, and again, I look here not just at the Stender, but at this whole world, are going to t- continue to go up, which is what makes it, I think, a, a shrewd investment. Uh, though no one should take business advice from me. That's really different from a world in which your markers of luxury are generated by the outside, by Madison Avenue. And then, you know, if you're from, you may or may right. not participate. Well, well it, it is a two-edged sword. There is this kind of uh, consumption, whether it's conspicuous or or a little more hidden, 
of what we'll call, let's say, uh, Jewish luxury items to spend $2 million on, on an object uh, formally studied upon by Agadol Yisrael, to uh, buy at auction manuscript pages uh, from from uh, some 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 Jewish book or or Jewish uh, Judaic antiquities. It's a way of spending your money. Now there might be, as you said, a business angle to it. People buy art at auction because art appreciates. People might buy uh, a, a rare a rare Judaic manuscript. But they also have to appreciate the art. But which they, is, I think, where you're going. But they well, either they do or they don't appreciate. It. No doubt, there there are people who 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 have their investment counselors. Uh, buy great art at at auction because that artist thought his work will appreciate over the coming years, even if I myself would never hang it in my in my house. Um, but but these are things. This is spending within the Jewish realm. You're buying works of Jewish value and and content. But at the and same- I would go even further in support of right that there, there's there's a as you said a double edged story here, which is you know look. This person is not spending their money on on sports uh, memorabilia or whatnot. They're spending it on something. They're showing kavod to Torah. They, right. This this of course lifts right the banner of Torah. Right. Yes, um, yes, and then absolutely. But it's a reflection of their of their Jewish values, which their parents and grandparents would not have been able to afford to demonstrate their values in that way. You could even make an argument that Pesach hotels now it. It happens that the event that that we participated in was held a week after Pesach. So I guess Pesach hotels were very much on people's minds. And there's no doubt that these kinds of luxury, luxury vacations, kosher for Pesach vacations, were something of the boogeyman in, in the room as an indicator of but something I, I wanna, profoundly I wanna... wrong. <laughs> but even but you could argue that even, if, even a kosher wrong. Passover vacation is an expression of a Jewish value. To celebrate right. Yontif together in comfort with your family cannot be said to be something which is completely disconnected from a Jewish value. And, and I think that's that's the point. So, you know, I mean, Pesach hotels are everyone's trigger always. I'm not sure they're bad. I certainly, you know, no one asked me for good reason. Uh, but but here's what we could say about them. And I think that there's there's two points, uh, one that you brought up and one sort of just behind it. Um, as you said, uh, this, right, it, it's like, imagine 300 people, you know, in, in some random week in, in, in uh, whatever, in, in, in June, decide to go away to a nice place, right, together with their families. So this would be tagged as Hulin Legamre, right? Okay, it's a thing people do. And... And therefore, it it's register on the firm world and the firm understanding of the firm world would be limited, right? Or kalech lederich right? 30 people want to go to the Super Bowl. Okay, so they go, they rent a plane or they have a plane and they go to the Super Bowl. And there's very little, you know, they don't start having minyanim and dafyomi before and and the halftime show with the rub flow. What, it, they just go to the Super Bowl. And the chicken wings are kosher. Mahaj, mahaj. The chicken wings are kosher. But... This does this tells us a lot about maybe these few people, but tells us very little about the structure of the firm world. But when it's a Pesach program, and as you said, it's done not it's done as a way of celebrating Yantif, as a way of being mechabed Yantif. You have Rabbanim, you have Shiurim. You immediately have to advertise these things in the firm press because, you know, to run these things, you need lots of people. And I think this is an, right. So all of a sudden it now registers as a product 
of the firm world. And I think this is a big difference between what you, when you have a couple of Gevirim, a couple of families, this all takes place out of sight of, of the Amcha, right? These things take place behind the palace gates. Uh, but as soon as you move from, let's say, the top 0.1% or even top 1% to something like the top 10 or 15 or maybe even 20%, now, all of a sudden, it can't be sustained in this very, very cocooned world. You immediately need advertising. You need to bring in the influencers to put the stuff on social media to get people to... Not only do you need advertising, to... you need to have the glossy magazines. The glossy magazines. advertise the... Exactly. Product. So you now have all this infrastructure, right? That is... And this is what creates... Um, the register in the firm world. If you want to think about it in numbers terms, right, that move from the 0.1% to the top 20, right, is huge, right? Because that's the difference between, you know, something that 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 the Yechidim have and enjoy to something that is now part of uh, the firm culture. And as we know, right, in American society and firm society, right, that top 20%, that drives the culture, right? Because because that's what's the media, and that's what the advertising the media, is. That's, that's the influencers, see. right? That's what people see. The, yeah. the the bottom, you know, occasionally there's an article written about it here and there, but that's that what drives uh, the culture. And I think that that to me, like that difference between not looking at one percent or even point one percent, even one percent, and not looking at the bottom thirty percent, but but that top twenty percent, that is, I think, and that is really new. That is in some version of this. Of this world. Well, so let me throw this back to you, and and I, I hope you won't think that I'm I'm overly cynical here. Please forgive me if that's the way it seems. But when ninety nine point nine percent of the Jewish world, the Orthodox world, modern and Haredi and everything in between, uh, just simply did not have the financial wherewithal to support an economy like this, um, you know, it's a bit of a chicken and an egg. When the Orthodox world had very little money or enough money to lead a middle-class life, but not a luxurious life. So then asceticism was celebrated as a very important virtue. Suddenly, there's enough money to support a luxury economy, a, 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 a from luxury economy. So suddenly, it's not such a threat to your at Shemayim. And... You know, now, therefore, we develop a kind of in-house luxury culture. We now have kosher cruises where instead of the night, instead of double wrapping fish and the night entertainment being ballroom dancing, we have kosher la mahadrin and mahadrin with the most exclusive Michelin star kosher chef and dafiomi and shiurim and uh, talks with the Orthodox influencers about sheklach and, and, uh, and, and who knows what? And so we've we've created as a chicken and egg. We've created an in-house luxury economy to supply that now that it has become kosher. And but the virtue itself of asceticism has kind of been has deteriorated. So I, I think that's partially right. You know, I don't. You know, like you said, it is a chicken and egg question, and, it, and it's hard to answer. Uh, what, but but we could do two things. First of all, we can trace this change, and then we can think about how it's changing the nature of what orthodoxy is and what it means. And and to me, that's that's the the point. So, you know, Ravarin Cutler is someone who looms large in 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 this story because the foundational narrative of Lakewood, 
uh, is that, and I think it's it's both you know the mythology and also pretty close to the to the to the to the historical truth, is that this town is started by someone who comes to America and basically sees uh, American Judaism. Uh, as as lacking, uh, Yoel Finkelman has written about this yes. extensively, and the truth is, um, you know, the the authorized, the quasi authorized, even authorized biographies of Revere and Cutler say the same thing. Um, you know, he sees an American Judaism that is largely assimilated, and he very much connects that assimilation to entry into American life, American consumerism, American luxury. In the Mishnas Rabbi Aaron. Uh, which are which are rec records of his schmoozing, not that there's there's one on Lundus, but this is the one that says schmoozing. It's, it's, it's sort of almost in every page. Um, and, you know, you'll hear often that Ravarin reset Torah in America or created the yeshiva movement in America. And, and what that's getting at uh, is that um, this idea that what it means to be a from Jew is to be Moser and Efesh for Torah, to really rebuild Lita or the, the, the Graz sort of uh, image of Lita in America, where to be Haredi was to really pull back, right? They were called Prushim. Uh, it's to pull back from the world, to live only in the Daladamas of Halacha, and to be, you know, some combination of Emuna, Bitachon, and support from others of how it's going to work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's a, you know, college, how's it going to work? And, and, and for him in that era, and not just him, it was clear that right that entry into American culture into any of these uh certainly luxury but I'm saying by his standards we're, we're talking about something so far from luxury even basic necessities would lead people away right. I mean you all um, but say, you all but say in the paper that if he were to come back to Lakewood today and stroll around Lakewood and the suburbs of Lakewood the the, the sprawl into these other communities which were once populated when I was a kid in New Jersey those Towns outside of Lakewood were populated by uh, I don't know by the whatever the Southern Jersey equivalent of hillbillies were. Um, uh, you say if he were to walk around and see the McMansions and the Maseratis and the and who knows well, it's, it's not it's not what place. I say actually it's uh, because you know I, I, it's it's what his biographer says. Um, he, uh, there's a book uh, Living Mishnah Sarbaron, which is one of these Feldheim uh, type oh. of not quite biography but something where biography and inspirational stories. And and in there, uh, they record a story that Ravarin is being driven around what were then the outskirts of Lakewood and seeing bigger houses. I'm sure it's not what we would call today right. McMansions. Bigger, bigger houses by those standards were quite small. Right. Uh, I think we would call this a small house today. Um, and uh, and uh, the driver, the guy driving him, says, tells him one day uh, the Kola Yunga Light will live here. And uh, and it's reported that Ravarin got upset at him, saying no. That's not the way the it was supposed to live. So, you know, that seems increasingly out of step. The, the way the way I, I we think about it in the paper is that there's almost like three sources of 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 precious that that enter into into the thought of of the yeshiva movement uh, in the 20th century, and and one is maybe the most classical, which is look, there's limited time. And limited resources in life. And what are you going to spend your life doing? You're spending your life making money? Are you spending your life learning Torah? Uh, then there's another one that comes from the Musser school and, and is um, articulated, I think, most influentially by Rev Dessler, who talks about it in terms of Emuna and Bitachon, and says that basically the only reason we need to do Hishtadlis, it's it's a it's a it's an amazing concept. And this goes back to to Kelm. 
that really, really, Aliba Damas, Hishtalis is only needed to keep Bechira Chavshis in equipoise. In other words, if if we would all get the amount of money that we deserve from God directly, then, then the Hashgacha would be so manifest that it would be impossible to deny God's Hashgacha. But Akash Baruch Hu needs to give us Bechira Chavshis, and therefore makes it look like it's one's work that um, that causes it. And, and Rav Dessler records from Rav Zundel of Salat, who, who says he bought a lottery ticket every year. And the theory was that if he won, so then there'd be like a, a makum litlos bola for that because say, ah, he won because uh, he bought the lottery ticket. And his ishtadlis was was um, was limited to that. Now, Rav Dessler writes, look, maybe that's not realistic for everybody. He understands that. And I, this is why I find Rav Dessler, he's usually the most interesting because he, he he's typically most attuned to to the both sides of the equation. So so if this says, look, we're gonna have a problem here, right? Because if you if you under if you if you overplay your hashgacha bona fides, like everyone tries to be like Rabzundal, so then then a bunch of people are gonna fall because they're not gonna get what they need and they're gonna be toalako. And then he says on the other side, of course, we have to understand that Alibadamus, that's where Parnassa comes from. So he says he got a balance. But then this is the part I found most interesting. He says, listen. Also in classic Rav Dessler fashion, that everyone has their Nakudas Habakira, right there. I, today we call it the, uh, you know, the, the 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 zone. What do they call it now? The Overton window, right? Um, but Rav Dessler says you're responsible for moving it, and moving it toward away from more Heshtalus and towards greater Bitachon. And he says, how do you do it? Well, you do it with another concept that sort of comes from the Grad even before. He's Tapkut Bemuat, like as a, as an ethic of from kite making do with less and he says you the way you should face business and commerce is understand that the only reason we need to work is because HaKadosh Baruch Hu cursed Adam Harisha and therefore you should do it you know not with gaiva and pride but with like kach nig, kach and therefore and you to know do so, the minimum so, that's required to, and to do the minimum so. that's required and you see this in the Chafetz Chaim and you see this in a lot of different places where it's very interesting it, it becomes more extreme over time of what if in the paper we trace a little bit about what Tarasso Kevo Malachdo Arai means um and you know in the Rishonim there's a variety of options but it could mean you know not in terms of time but in terms of attitude importance okay. its influence on you you're and as you're talking you move, about the, the kind of uh not life work balance, but the 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 Torah, life Torah balance. work balance. Yeah. Torah work balance. And um, as you get to the Magen Avram and then the Chavetz Chaim, this begins to see of Kidei Parnasaso only as much as you need. And the Chavetz Chaim in the Mishnabura, right, and in, in the Halacha Sefer, sort of writes pretty explicitly that a person has to be very honest themselves. Are they pushing? Are they trying to acquire more than they literally need to subside? The Eitzahar is always active in that area. So that that form of discourse, that form of talk, I think is just much, much less common today. That's called the second one. And then the third one, which is stressed by a variety of writers, but but we looked at Ravarn Cutler, is that like he, he quotes from the Rishonim that just like fire and water can't coexist, so Ruchnias and Gashmias can exist. And he says Yisurin are essential. And by Yisurin, he means physical discomfort and poverty. Uh, are are sort of essential ingredients to acquiring the Torah. And he quotes the the Brisa de Kinyan Torah in the sixth yeah. parak of, of Avos, and and he he asks actually a really what I thought was a really interesting question. He says, look, some of these things, right, Hasmada, Shimish Chachamim, etc., 
I mean, this is not his language, but essentially saying, are, are of course, what you need to study anything, right? Like, uh, obviously, if you want to get good at any intellectual field, you, you got to do this. But but other things, right, like mute Shana and mute Sicha, right, seem to be at best neutral and at most counterproductive. Mm-hmm. And one of those things is Yisurin to success in a field. But he says, no, no, no. Mikshachat hua mishnah. Right. That is that that just in the same way, in the same way that learning and being around Tamid and Hasmada and are essential to acquiring Torah, so are Yisurin and these deprivations. I think those latter two things are increasingly absent from our culture. You still uh, people will still understand, certainly as many people who's learning uh in Kolel and who give up various um you know, career and career options. And everyone understands that, yes, you have limited time and efforts and you're going to put them either in this box or that box. I think that's still out there. Uh, but this sort of Yisurin as a necessary good, as a virtuous suffering, to use different language, mm-hmm. and the idea that that working too much is a chesarin and bitachon, I, I think that there's just much less register of that and much more supporting Torah is a form of learning Torah, um, using your money for tzedakah, for chesed, which, you know, I, I, these aren't, I'm not like, but these, let's notice, these are different nigunim and are subtly shifting the sort of meaning of of orthodoxy, certainly certain forms of it. Um, you've mentioned Ravaran Cutler a number of times. Uh, so I want to go from Ravaran to Ravaran. I, I, I recall, uh, you know, the, prior to my appointment to the exalted office of being editor of tradition, I did other things in life. And one of them many years ago, uh, many years ago, I, I was once involved in organizing the Purim Spiel at Yeshiva Serbeno Yitzchak Al And there was a skit, a kind of like dating game skit, where the girl is behind the curtain and uh, the different boys on the stage. And it was all like senses of like mistaken. I believe today we say young men and young women. Yes, yes. So uh, back then it was boys and girls. And <laughs> uh, uh, so she asks about, about what the person thinks that Rav Aaron's greatest contribution has been so one says Rav Aaron he, he created the Torah in the wilderness Lakewood Yeshiva you know the other says Rav Aaron synthesis of western culture and Torah and the third thinks she's talking about Hank Aaron <laughs> but right conversation to bring it a little bit more home to our our uh, our religious community and 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 our readers so within modern orthodoxy no comma so you you write that there was this ideal of torah umada it might have passed under different slogans but we all know what we're we're talking about which that encounter with modernity had in some way it, it was an attempt to to take the best what, what Ravarn Lichtenstein had said the the quoting Matthew Arnold the best that's been thought and said the best of high culture, the best of art, of literature, of the humanities, and to combine them together with Torah and with a Torah lifestyle. Uh, so then in the paper, you turn to the, the audience that was gathered there that day in Antinek, and you say, beyond the walls of this room, it's hard to see that projects, that, that project as one of great success. In contrast, the yeshivish balabatish world has created a form of modern comma orthodoxy, which is anchored less in the openness to Hegel and Dickens and more towards Hermes and diamond crown cigars. 
in consumer appetites, luxury culture, Hermes of the modern of the modern world. So here's here's another aspect of this because we're not only talking about buying uh, high end Judaica, and we're not even talking about maybe making a reach and saying no, spending all this money on the Passover vacation is a Jewish value of family and celebration and et cetera. But we're talking about sometimes the most, what, what once would have been considered the most, pardon the expression, the most goyish of pleasures, which now can carry both a high price tag and heksher. We're talking about the world of whiskey and we're talking about cigars and we're talking about things you brought to my attention, this, this fine publication, one of our competitors, uh, to tradition, something called the uh, Macher's Gazette, right? Which I thought when you sent it to me at first, I, I thought for sure it was a it was a, a Purim parody. But it turns out that you can't you can't parody this stuff because it, it's already a parody. So tell us what we see in the pages of of Macher's Gazette. It's not yeah. Just so about, so just on I think it's called Muslim. I think it's called Macher's Magazine. I'm not Macher's sure it's still in print. It might have uh, run a show. In fact, when, when it came out, there was a very vibrant online debate as to whether this is parody or not. Um, but but to your point, right, is that it's today, as you said, um, we could talk about things that have a, a, a from value to them. But today it's not inconsistent with orthodoxy to engage in whiskey, of course, got to be kosher, wine culture, right? Think about even kosher things, food, you know, wine and food and entertaining culture, jewelry, right? So Avital, um, you know, has an eye towards, towards obviously the, 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 the feminine side much more than I do. And, and she writes, uh, you know, wrote about some of those things. Um, you know, whiskey and cigars is kind of very male, um, but these things are now, are as you said, I think not all that long ago were tagged as goyish, just by definition. Even if you had the money, that's not a way he does something, right? And now, right, these are part of right the the after party of a good simcha is is the is the wine uh, you know the the brandy and cigar uh, celebration. Um, and these are no longer in, you know, fine dining, as I said, you know, kosher, of course, but, but these are, these are no longer inconsistent with, with from life. And in some ways, in some ways are becoming not definitional in the sense of necessary for, but certainly a certain banner. And I want to be clear here, right? One of the things that happens is the Orthodox world has grown in orders of magnitude in size, which means there's all sorts of different things going on in there. Mm. Uh, but this is one of the things going on there. Someone at the conference brought up something I know nothing about, but just the term struck me, Hasidic car culture. Car culture. Car culture. There's now a thing called Hasidic car culture. Hasidic car culture we know used to be a, a station wagon. The back door was held together with duct tape. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Right. So those, the Rebbe car that you and I grew up with, I don't want to say they don't exist, but they, they exist less um, in a very different way, a little more political. We now know that shuls have shooting in NRA clubs. Again, what was more guyish? Uh, so these are all sorts of ways in which something modern is happening within orthodoxy, so, right? So it's a it, way in which, let me just, it's a way in which orthodoxy and not modern orthodoxy, but self-consciously non-modern orthodox is nevertheless acclimating itself and finding itself and reinterpreting the general culture in its own image to create these, these spaces. So I, I want to maybe wrap up with one last question, which is, I think, a challenging question to that, to that world, which you and Avital so uh, vividly depict in your paper. Look, in the Haredi world, 
this modernism is not any kind of synthesis. It, this is not well. It's a certain kind of synthesis. Well, it's a, it, but this is not the Lamb Soloveitchik Estonian version of 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 synthesis of of culture, culture with a capital capital C, but a kind of justification or hechsher for a type of consumerism which it can now suddenly suddenly afford. So the question of how, how do you present an ideological justification? The ideological justification for mistapek bemuat of making do with little of a life of asceticism of prishud of of modesty uh, in 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 consumerism that's easy to justify ideologically within a religious worldview, but now to turn 180 degrees and to find a justification for this. So one of the things you mentioned in passing, and it did get some discussion at the conference, was. Well, there's a kind of ironic, if not source, then parallel from the Christian world. And that's this notion of the prosperity gospel. Now, we wouldn't use that term here, but the concepts that are marshaled in justifying this, this modern comma orthodoxy smack very similar to that prosperity gospel. And that, of course, is very ironic because, in other words, the Haredi world bashed the modern orthodox world, Torah Umada. Uh, embrace of culture, et cetera, for being too, you know, too, too, too much an affinity with the non-Jewish world. And here, if we're correct, that it's this notion of prosperity gospel, which serves as an ideological justification for the phenomena we're describing, that's perhaps the biggest chukat akum of all. It's the largest Gentile influence on a Jewish lifestyle we could possibly imagine. So explain to us a bit what you mean by that, what what the prosperity gospel is, how it Lahavdil plays. Sure. Well, let, let me let me do a couple of things. First, I don't want to put uh, you know, monorthaxy should not be let off the hook here, um, in in a variety of ways. You know, classic monorthaxy. So first of all, well, as I said for no other reason than so few people adhere to this ideal <laughs> of cultural synthesis. That's right. I mean, part of what we're seeing is that that distinction, and as I said, we started, uh, is really blurring. Right. So today, if you're going to kosher restaurants and you're shopping in kosher stores and you're engaged in from music and literature and all that. Right. So this is these places where these worlds meet, you know, to call to even to go and say, what's Haredi, what's modern orthodox? I don't even think that's a useful distinction anymore. I mean, you could obviously at the edges, these things are very clear. Uh, so this is our culture as much as, uh, you know, our tradition reading culture as much as anybody else's. And we have our own chalik uh, and share in this. Uh, as well, um, I think part of the difference is is that the 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 more culturally modern Orthodox you are, the less of a, a kind of need to wrap everything within uh, under the talus. You can say, "Listen, I'm going to a ball game." Vizel, I've always thought one of the beautiful things, but also it has a, a double edged sword of the communities to the right, is that everything. Right. Everything has to be wrapped within a Jewish key, within a Jewish context. And this is where I'd say, like, what we have here is 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 not so much an assimilation as much of an interpretation of or a reinterpretation of it, right? because all these concepts are are most of them, not all of them. Most of them are in some way subtly transformed into something that is sort of within the Jewish fabric or tachat kanfeha talit, if you will, um, as it happens. Um, so so I think that. 
that and 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 that you know that's what I'm saying. To go back to those two cruises that we talked about, right? There's a lot of good to be said about a cruise where there's Minion and there's you know Shabbos, obviously, uh, and there's Shiurim and there's Dafyomi and there's From Entertainment, right? Right? Like it, it, there's there's a power there, right? Um, you know, something that came up in the conference as well as people talked about. You know, mikvahs have have gone from being pretty dingy, dark from spaces, slimy to spa. From slimy to spa. In fact, I, the reason I know what a because when I grew up in Atlanta, there was one mikvah. Um, it was generally the women's mikvah, but an erev uh, Yom Kippur and Erev and whatnot. It was a men's mikvah. I knew exactly what it looked like. Um, a spa it was not. Um, right. So all these things also make the mitzvah more attractive, get people more into Certainly it, widen the, the tent. Uh, right. So so I think that there's a lot of complexity here, and I think that's a little bit your answer. Um, is to say, listen, we don't live. No, we don't live in that world anymore. We live in this world, and and one of the things we have to do is always, you know, create, um, you know, respond to 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 where we're at. The the other thing I would say is that, and here I'm a little bit guessing, is that, you know, and you see this particularly in the more in the yeshiva community, right? It's grown to such a degree that it's it's quite diverse, both in terms of people, but also in terms of institutions. Like, obviously, the yeshivas are at the center of this. But think of all the other chesed organizations, things like Hatzala, High Lifeline, these are just things that sort of most people know, Chaveirim, Misaskim. Um, that, that, that that sort of constitute this world. So it's it's in in some ways, I think this is why it succeeded. Is that very contrary, I think, to to what the initially thought. It, it really now can encompass whether you're the Eloi, right, the 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 lineal and maybe intellectual descendant of the Gon Midona, or if you're just an average person, male or female, right? There's something in that culture for you, um, which is really different, and I think that's the key to a success. And as that happens, of course, these things uh, come in. So there's a sort of diffusion, but I think. Contrary very much to to that community's own leadership 60, 80 years ago, who were sure that the diffusion would lead to the disintegration of that community. I think that they've uh, radically uh, outlived expectations in being able to, to pull this together. And part of what the, this is, is figuring out how to bring these natural urges and these social, um, you know, these social concepts uh, within. Um, but you know, as we said, every 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 mile has a chesaron attached to it, and I think that that is also part of what we're talking about. Well, these are all really fascinating phenomena that you've helped us uh, delve into and track. We can only uh, we can only hope that, like Rabzisal, our faith will be tested by winning the lottery, and then we'll be put to the uh, put to the challenge uh, <laughs> ourselves. Um, but uh, and and just to go back, you know, Ravarn, and we quote this in the piece. Ravarn Lichtenstein, um, you know, already what twenty five years ago, sort of saw this, right? And and his critique was, and he writes this in the in the famous Green Book. Yeah. Uh, he says, "Listen, if you're really a Grunick, right? I think his example is Rebbeim Velazhin. Then I understand that you're always learning in Torah." Uh, your your um, and I think this is a question for us, for our community, right? Which and I think we should end it there because ultimately, um, right? So that if you're really um such a person, then then Revarin Lichtenstein says I understand uh, why you know any form of engagement in, in in secular high culture 
uh, is a is a problem. He says, but if you're if you're the type of person, and again, he was talking in in terms that he understood, you know, twenty five years lamb ago. Chops. Who's right? Who's earning extra money to have lamb chops? My favorite thing in this is that Rukhaim Dov Keller, uh, who was on the Moetis in the in the in the latter decades of the twentieth century, talked about plush carpets as that was his sort of. Uh, his sort of example. So then, right, you're already playing in the world. So you're earning money. You're going on vacations. You're, you're eating lamb chops. So, so at that point, to say, but I can't not, uh, I can't divert. You know, the yom of means I can't read any high culture. So what I would say, and I think probably it's most appropriate to end it with us, which is, well, uh, we're kind of in this too, right? So what we see is that a lot of middle and consumer culture um, easily, uh, easily gets stitched together and imbricated within uh, within Yahadis. Uh, but what about that high culture? culture um where where is that um are we and i'm talking the we to i'm looking at the camera and i'm looking at myself are, are we doing our uh our, our stated avoda there are we are we living up to our, our own ideals and uh um you know i i can't say that the answer to that is is always an affirmative yes and Materialism and the Rise of Modern Kama Orthodoxy was the paper presented by Chaim Seiman and Avital Kizik Goldsmith at the recent Tradition Today Summit, which explored material success and its challenges. Uh, together with all of the other presenters from that event, the authors are writing and rewriting and revising uh, their papers, which we hope will appear uh, soon in a, an upcoming issue of, of tradition. And we will be parceling out other content from that event uh, in other digital formats, such as the podcast you have just listened to. We hope it will generate a conversation across our community about these issues, these challenges, and others. So, Chaim Seiman, as always, thank you for your always interesting, always engaging, always entertaining uh, insights to contemporary Jewish life. Thank you.